Welcome, everybody, to Rationalism versus Mysticism, Episode 7. So hopefully this will be a good one. Um, I want to read you a poem to begin. And I think this poem really expresses a lot of, you know, the, the idea of the difficulties that we were discussing from last week about mysticism. And I want this class to really, this is going to be hopefully the last class that we have before we delve into Kabbalah. So as a continued preface to, to all of that stuff, I want this to be really dedicated to the science behind the mystical experience. And I think it's so interesting and important to understand what is going on in your brain, both psychologically and neurologically, when you're having this feeling like you're connected with Hashem, like you're connected with God. So let's take a look at some of these quotes and these sources. But so the first thing I always like to start off with something that's going to hopefully move you spiritually, move you into the mindset and open your heart. Because as we've discussed in previous classes, the, you know, one of the most profound ways to connect to the human being, the human animal is through the heart. So let's see. This is from a, a, a monk. I believe he's a Tibetan monk. Um, his name is Thich Nhat Hanh. And he has this from his book, Earth Prayers. And I want this hopefully to express the duality that we've discussed as part of the mystical experience. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. Look at me. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird whose wings are still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. Right, so he's so connected to the rhythms of birth and death. I am the mayfly metamorphosing in the surface of the river. I am also the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. I am also the merchant of arms selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. I am also the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo, with plenty of power in my hand. I am also the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm, it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills up all the four oceans. Please call me by my correct names, so that I can hear all my cries and my laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are but one. Please call me by my correct names, so I can become awake. And so that the door of my heart be left open, the door of compassion. So I think the reason this poem is so moving 
is because in it, you see the, the two sides of spirituality. You see not only the birth and not only the life and not only the laughter, but you also see the death and the destruction, destructive element and the sadness. So, so part of accepting what life has to give us and part of, of connecting to infinity, part of connecting to everything that God and Hashem is, you know, giving us in our lives is being able to connect both to the positive and to the negative. How you doing, Elliot? Baruch Haba. Right? So the ability to connect not only to the positive element, but also to the negative element of existence, both are necessary for a person to really live in the mystical way. So now, now that we, we I hopefully opened your heart to some degree with that poem, we could go into some of the other sources and I want to hear what you guys think. So this, the first story here is from a physicist named Ernest Barnes, right? So that's really interesting. He says, I remember that I was going to bathe from a stretch of shingle to which the few people who stayed in the village seldom went. Suddenly, the noise of the insects was hushed. Time seemed to stop. A sense of infinite power and peace came upon me. I can best liken the combination of timelessness with amazing fullness of existence to the feeling one gets in watching the rim of a great silent flywheel or the unmoving surface of a deep, strongly flowing river. Nothing happened Yet existence was completely full. All was clear. All right, so this is amazing. This is coming from a physicist. You know, we associate physicists today as people who are closed off to God, closed off to the idea of something beyond themselves. But this physicist, Ernest Barnes, I think he must have been a religious person as well. He describes the, the experience of God as fundamentally beyond time. It was timeless, and it had this fullness to it that he describes as watching this rim of this, the, this great silent flywheel. So a flywheel, you could think, imagine like you take a bicycle, you lift it up in the air, and you just spin the wheel. And it seems to go on infinitely. And it has this, this quality to it that is so beyond limitation, that is, it's so breathtaking in a way, that it kind of, it's like, all right, it just continues forever almost and that's that's the experience that he had and i love this other image that he gives of the unmoving surface of a deep strongly flowing river to me that's that really very well expresses the experience that all of us have right it's over here of a deep strongly flowing river what does that mean to you it, it means that as a human being as a person that is that is experiencing this you feel this incredible infinity behind yourself so there's there's actually a meditative technique that i love to use where you you literally point at yourself you take your finger you point at yourself and you you try to follow where is the finger pointing to and you realize the finger is pointing to you but what are you where are you you're behind your eyes what's behind your eyes what is that is it darkness is it blackness it's not quite either of those it's really just this infinite nothingness. 
And there's, there's a certain equanimity that, that all the, the religious mystics are trying, whether it be the Kabbalists or the Sufi mystics or the Christian mystics, whoever the mystical people are, they always are telling us about this infinite peace and then this infinite calm. And I love this idea of a, of a strongly flowing river, this deep river, right? That's kind of the, the experience of feeling larger than yourself that you get when you experience the infinite of the mystical experience. Mike, Mike. Yes. So on, on, that, on that sentence, it's very impactful to me because I could just tell you that when you read it, it sort of is a flashback. Because we went, 20 guys, you know, when I told you we used to go on the river trips, we went on the uh, the river, it's like white water in Chile, in Patagonia. Wow. And it's seven hours of a, of a flowing, like one of the roughest rivers in the world, what gorgeous Patagonia, strong flowing river, white water, and you really just, you don't even know where you are. You don't. You don't Unbelievable. Infinite, whatever, it's like, it just the river never ends. You don't have a clue of where you are, what you're doing, and you just you hold on to your life. It's like crazy. I really love that. I really, really love that because it expresses something so deep about having this experience of, of God, if you want to call it that. And it, it really yeah. it resonates with me too. I, I there's something about the river because the river is something that's always flowing and life is always changing and everything's flowing all the time. But if you could kind of step back behind the changing and realize there's something, even though there's, the river is constantly flowing, there's something in common the whole time along. And that's kind of the expression of in life, even though everything is flowing and everything's changing and everything's dancing around us and it's dancing through us, there's also this infinite stillness behind it all. Right, but the challenge is also, I can tell you, I can relate to the sentence that during that time when I was really probably the scariest time in my life, that the other guys really with me were fearless. And we got, we had incredible guides. And we got to a point in this river, it's called the Fudalefu River. It's one of the roughest rivers in the world. You know, it's like comparable to the Yangtze River in China. Wow. And going down this river, we got to a point we had to pull over like you know with the boats and the, and the guides told the boys which a lot of the guys that you know in the community that are fearless don't, we we can't we can't continue so if we couldn't continue it wasn't like that you go back to your house you run a river if you don't do the ride if you don't keep going you'll never get the base care so wow. they looked at the people and they said we're sorry we can't do it we don't know what we're going to do so three of the guys who were really part of the team that I was, you know, with, the group that I was with, they told them it's not a matter of if we can do it. It's how it's not a matter of we can't do it. It's how do we get it done? And they wow. convinced the guys to take us down the river, and with that sham self, we got through. Unbelievable! It's those yeah. experiences you you never forget those. Yeah, uh, those are my favorite, honestly. Wow, I love that. I'm glad I'm glad it resonated. Yeah. Um, so now here's the next one from Lama Govinda. He's one of these, uh, also one of these Eastern gurus. The temporal sequence is converted into a simultaneous coexistence, the side-by-side -side existence of things into a state of mutual interpenetration, a living continuum in which time and space are integrated. I absolutely love this quote because 
part of the mystical experience, one of the fundamentals is the change in the way we experience time. So we were just talking about this river where you, you realize everything that's changing, but what's behind all the things that are changing? That's you. You are that constant behind everything that's changing. And once you experience that, this timelessness, what does it feel like? What does time start to feel like? It feels like a web. It starts to feel like everything is, or the whole panorama of space-time exists in front of you. It exists all at once. And it's an interpenetration. That's the way that it's a web. It's all connected one event to another, one frame to another. And it doesn't exist linearly from beginning to end. It exists all at once. And that to me is, is such a beautiful quote and just a, a great way of expressing what the mystical experience could be like. So now this is a quote from William James, and then we'll get into more of the scientific stuff regarding the mystical experience. So he says as follows, the man who lives in his religious center of personal energy and is actuated by spiritual enthusiasms differs from his previous carnal self in perfectly definite ways. So he says that the experience of the mystical will change you as a person. The new ardor which, bum, which burns in his breast consumes in its glow the lower nose, which formerly beset him and keeps him immune against infection from the entire graveling portion of his nature. Right, So you become fundamentally different. Magnanimities, once impossible, are now easy. It, you, you're right, you're now more open-hearted. It's easier for you to give kindness. Paltry conventionalities and mean incentives, once tyrannical, hold no sway. Right, once these things that used to be so petty that you used to worry about, no longer are you worrying about those in, right in the, in the wake of a mystical experience. Um, the stone wall inside of him has fallen. The hardness in his heart has broken down. Right, so there's something that is no longer holding your heart at bay. Your heart is more open to God, All right? So there's a, there's a quote from Sefer Devarim that says, that God will um, give a brit milah almost to the, to the foreskin of your heart. What does that mean? God is going to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. I think it means this. Your heart's not going to be like stone anymore. It's not going to be completely numb it's going to be feeling, it's going to be open. And that's the beauty of the mystical experience. The rest of us can, I think, imagine this by recalling our state of feeling in those temporary melting moods into which either the trials of real life or the theater or a novel somehow sometimes throw us, especially if we weep. For it is then as if our tears broke through an inveterate uh, inner dam and let all sorts of ancient peccancies and moral stagnancies drain away. So these are big words, but what it basically means is that you opened up the dam of all your emotions. And you let it flow, leaving us now washed and soft of heart and open to every nobler leading. Right. So once you experience God in so much fullness, it changes you fundamentally and it opens you up emotionally. So anybody that you meet, a lot of these atheists today who are claiming that they know for a fact that science proves that there's no God, they could not be more out of touch with the truth of the totality of human existence, which includes so much of this religious experience. And if you want to call it God or not, that's fine. 
We don't have to make it into a semantic argument, but just know that there's this ineffable experience, this thing you can't even put words to, but it's so profound that it leads you more, uh, it leads you to become a kinder person and a more open-hearted person. I think that's really beautiful. All right, so that was from William James. Now we'll move on to uh, some stuff from Jonathan Haidt. And I think this is probably some of my favorite stuff from Haidt because, you know, Haidt really is able to completely, um, to completely, you know, get to the heart of a lot of what it means to experience a mystical experience. And we already discussed Jonathan Haidt's ideas about the human being being like an elephant with a rider on top where the elephant is like the emotional part of man and the rider is like the rational part of man. And that the rider, the rational part evolved to serve the elephant. And if you know that you have a real insight into the way that humans behave and into your own self, what could be more valuable. I think, uh, you know, just remember that quote, know thyself, of course, part of Heights ideologies to do that. So let's see what he says. From Wilson's perspective, mystical experience is an off button for the self. When the self is turned off, people become just a cell in the larger body, a bee in the larger hive. It is no wonder that the after effects of mystical experience are predictable. People usually feel a stronger commitment to God or to helping others often by bringing them to God. Right. So you become larger than yourself. When you experience the mystical, that's the beauty. No longer are you limited ego. No longer are you this individual cut off from everybody. Right. So ID, if you, if you ever want to talk about the most difficult parts of your lifetime, it probably has a lot to do with feeling very cut off either from people you love or from the society around you or from nature or from God. But the best parts of your life and the most meaningful parts of your life come from feeling larger than yourself and feeling like he says a cell in the larger body All right does that resonate so so give me an example so he's gonna he's gonna give some examples now he's gonna say something very interesting about humans and you, you know let, let's get to it I'll, I'll i'll show you in a second the neuroscientist andrew newberg has studied the brains of people undergoing mystical experiences mostly during meditation and has found where that off switch might be all right, so it turns off the sense of being an individual. In the rear portion of the brain's parietal lobes, right? So the parietal lobes are right back here in the brain. Under the rear portion of the top of the skull are two patches of cortex Newberg calls the orientation association areas, right? So this is super interesting, right? That normally what keeps you thinking that you're a limited self are these parts in your brain called the orientation association areas, the patch in the left hemisphere appears to contribute to the mental sensation of having a limited and physically defined body, right? So the left side makes you realize the boundaries of your body and thus keeps track of your edges. The corresponding area on the right hemisphere maintains a map of the space around you, right? So the right side makes you understand where you are in space. These two areas receive input from your senses to help them maintain an ongoing representation of yourself and its location in space at the very moment when people report achieving states of mystical union, these two areas appear to be cut off, right? So note these parts now are not doing their jobs anymore. So the part on the left and the part on the right are not doing, what does that mean? Input, 
from other parts of the brain is reduced and overall activity in these orientation areas is reduced too. But Newberg believes they are still trying to do their jobs. Ah, so this is the interesting part. They're still trying to do their jobs. What is that? What's going to happen now? The area on the left tries to establish the body's boundaries and doesn't find them. The area on the right tries to establish the self's location in space and doesn't find it. The person experiences a loss of self combined with the paradoxical expansion of the self out into space, yet with no fixed location in the normal world of three dimensions. The person feels merged with something vast, something larger than the self. So ID, the best example I could give you is, uh, you know, let's say you step up, you're hiking, and you get to the top of the mountain. And while during the hike, it was all, you know, enclosed in the forest. And then finally, you get out of the forest onto the tippy top of the mountain. And you look out and the Shamaim is so expansive. And you see the vista of all the mountains. And you, you absolutely can't believe what you're seeing. And you get the chills throughout your body. And you say, oh, my God. And you feel like you are dissolved. Like you're so tiny. And yet, at the same moment, you're so large. You ever get that feeling? So it's, it's very scary that this whole conversation leads to throwback in time. On another trip, we went <laughs> river rafting in Utah, and we climbed the mountain. And we were supposed to be like a two-hour guide. We had two guides and about 20 guys in the community. And we, we had shorts and a backpack. And I always take my... We climbed two, three, four hours. Now it gets dark and it's freezing. We we went through our water. We went through our, we were dehydrated. We had nothing. We got to the tip of this mountain. Gorgeous, pitch black. The only thing was a moon that was beautiful, lit up. That was the only light we had. We weren't prepared for anything because it was a day. We looked at the guys and we said, What's going on? It's two hours over the time that we said that we're supposed to be on the mountain. They said, honestly, we have no clue. We made the wrong turns. We don't, we don't know how to get out. Oh, my God. <laughs> we're on top of the mountain. And I looked up to the sky, and the moon was there. So all the boy, half the guys was, were, were really praying like it was the end of our life. And the other half was saying how we're going to get out. And I started... I tried to, I started to pray Shemaisrael, and told me, the boys looked at me, and they got ID, what are you doing? I go, you guys ain't getting me out of here. <laughs> I'm praying to God. You know, one of the boys had, had really fearless, and he said, I'm leaving, and I'm going to find a way out. And we said, please don't go, because we'll never see you again. <laughs> Two hours later, he came back, and he found a way to climb off the mountain, off a cliff, on the ground. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's, uh, I think I'm, I'm pulling these memories out of your head. It's great. I'm really oh, it's great. Between the river and the mountains, those are the two, like, wow, it's crazy. Amazing. I hope I get another one. Yeah, let's see. Let's see. This is great. All right. So Newberg believes that rituals that involve repetitive movement and chanting, particularly when they are performed by many people at the same time, help to set up resonance patterns in the brains of the participants that make this mystical state more likely to happen. The historian William McNeil, drawing on very different data, 
came to the same conclusion when McNeil was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1941. Basic training required that he march for hundreds of hours on the drill field in close formation with the few dozen other men. At first, McNeil thought the marching was just a way to pass the time because his base had no weapons with which to train. But after a few weeks of training, the marching began to induce in him an altered state of consciousness. And this is what he says. Words are inadequate to describe the emotion aroused by the prolonged movement in unison that drilling involved. A sense of pervasive well-being is what I recall more specifically a strange sense of personal enlargement, a sort of swelling out, becoming, becoming bigger than life, thanks to participation in collective ritual. Decades later, McNeil studied the role that synchronized movement, dance, religious ritual, and military training has played in history. In keeping together in time, he concluded that human societies since the beginning of recorded history have used synchronized movement to create harmony and cohesion within groups, sometimes in the service preparing for hostilities with other groups. Right? So isn't that unbelievable that just the, the action of marching together and just the actions of dancing together can create a systematic connection and synchronization between all the individuals in the group and making the individuals feel larger than themselves. So McNeil's conclusion suggests that synchronized movement and chanting might be evolved mechanisms, or I'd say might be evolved mechanisms for activating the altruistic motivations created in the process of group selection, right? So the reason that one group is more likely to survive than another group is because that group is able to do the synchronized harmony uh, of movements. And by doing that, they can function more cohesively as a group. And that makes them evolutionarily more fit. Isn't that unbelievable? The extreme self-sacrifice characteristic of group selected species such as ants and bees can often be found among soldiers. All right, so as, as Jonathan Haidt would say, humans are 90% chimp and 10% bee. That where 90% of us is, is individualistic and selfish and all that stuff. But there's 10% of us as humans that's able to be altruistic and be part of the larger group. McNeil quotes an extraordinary passage from the book, The Warriors, Reflections of Men in Battle, that describes the thrilling communal state that soldiers sometimes enter. I, I passes insensibly into we. My becomes our. An individual fate loses its central importance. I believe that it is nothing less than the assurance of immortality that makes self-sacrifice at these moments so relatively easy. Right? So why are soldiers so willing to give their lives, he says, because it's so ecstatic and it's so amazing and it really feels immortal. You feel like you, you are immortal because you've joined with a group that's larger than yourself and that larger than yourself group never dies and therefore you're willing to give up your measly individual existence because you know that the real you will never die i may fall but i do not die for that which is real in me goes forward and lives on in the comrades for whom i gave up my life to me that's unbelievable so id let me ask you a question have you ever been with all the hasidim or somewhere in Yerushalayim or somewhere like that where you're chanting for like 45 minutes or you're dancing and you're swaying for a very long time. 
and the chanting, and you know, I think the Hasidim have this idea of a nigan, the nigun that they do is that it doesn't really work until about 45 minutes to an hour in, where they just oy, 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 for 45 minutes. And it's not about the beauty of the tune necessarily, it's that they, they, they're chanting all together in unison. And by doing that, they're inducing exactly this. They're synchronizing their brains together. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it definitely, it, it definitely, that level of excitement definitely, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, puts a steroid in you. Exactly. So, yeah, no, I, can, I could relate to one experience like that. Um, 30 years ago, I, I went when Archibald printed the uh, Shot and Scene edition. Yeah. You know, of the Gemara, you know, of all the tractates. So they had a celebration at Chabad because uh, Jerome Shatinsky, may rest in peace, was the philanthropist behind it. And he was a mentor. He, I, he was a mentor of mine. He, he mentored me. And uh, he invited a, a group of us to the, uh, to, the, uh, to the festivities. And there was like a thousand Chabadniks there. And we had a whole celebration and it was in line with what you said. The spirit was so high. And then and then to top the spirit off, at the end, uh, we had the we had the uh, the honor of meeting with uh, Rabbi Schneerson. Unbelievable. Oh my god, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Like about 30 seconds each that each one went and he blessed us and we Wow. What did yeah. he tell you? I, well, I don't, you know, he's, he, he was a heavy Yiddish and Hebrew, so I don't <laughs> I had a translator, and I just went, and I just really, I asked him for some, you know, blessings for my family. So beautiful. And just, you know, some direction and business, and he gave, and he, through the translator, he gave me some, it was like maybe about a minute with him. You know? Wow, he was an incredible person. No, but he was really the truth. He was angelic in his looks and his, yeah. his skin. He was, so I've heard. No, I've heard unbelievable. But things. but but the unis. But like you said, regarding that 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 sentence or that paragraph, the unis, the united and and celebration definitely gives a you know it gives it an amplified effect in a person's mind. For sure, it's an unbelievable thing that it evolved. Literally, the 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 groups of human beings that were able to join together like that were more effective in survival than the humans that were not able to do that. So to me, that's unbelievable. The fact that science can, can explain why we, we have this, right? So we have a couple more paragraphs of Jonathan Haidt, and then we'll go into Michael Pollan and see what he says about the science of, of uh, the mystical. So here Haidt says, there is indeed something larger than the self able to provide people with a sense of purpose they think worth dying for the group of course one's group noble group's noble purpose is sometimes another group's pure evil right so it could get scary but at the end of the day if your group is strong enough and its values are important enough then you will be willing to die for that group so for your family or for your community or for your nation we see examples of people being willing to die for their groups. And a lot of it has to do with this feeling of, I experience immortality through the group. I experience being larger than myself. And it, it, we know neurologically how that works now, right? With the parietal lobes. So what can you do to have a good, happy, fulfilling, and meaningful life? What is the answer to the question of purpose within life? 
I believe the answer can be found only by understanding the kind of creature that we are. Divided in the many ways we are divided. We, are sh- we were shaped by individual selection to be selfish creatures who struggle for resources, pleasure, and prestige. And we were shaped by group selection to be hive creatures who long to lose ourselves in something larger. Right? So on the one hand, we want to be individualists. We want to be like chimpanzees who are, even when you see chimpanzees hunting, and it looks like they're you know, helping each other, really they're all out for themselves and they don't have any sense of, of, any, of helping anyone else. But humans are not like that because humans evolved through group selection, this capacity to have altruism and also to be larger than the self and to actually care about the group as a whole. We are social creatures who need love and attachments, and we are industrious creatures with needs for affectance, able to enter a state of vital engagement with our work. We are the rider, and we are the elephant, and our mental health depends on the two working together, each drawing on the other's strength, right? So we need to not reject any part of ourselves. So we need to find meaning in all elements of being human. On the one hand, in our love and attachment. On the other hand, in the work that we do. So that's like Adam 1 and Adam 2, Rabbi Soloveitchik's reason for the the split in in Bereshit Perek Aleph and Bereshit Perek Bet. Adam 1 is the the industrious, majestic man. Adam 2 is the lonely man of faith who has a relationship with everything and with God and with his world and with the people. All right, so we need to be both of those. We also need to be the elephant, which is the emotional part of ourselves and the intuitive part of ourselves, as well as the rider, who is the rational part of ourselves. I don't believe there is an inspiring answer to the question, what is the purpose of life? Yet by drawing on ancient wisdom and modern science, we can find compelling answers to the question of purpose within life. Right, so he's saying with the purpose of life from an external perspective, only God could ever answer that. He's not saying it in those words. I'm saying it in those words. Only God could understand the meaning of life from an external perspective. But human beings, the best we can do is to understand the meaning within life. How do we find meaning? How do we make meaning in our lives? The final version of the happiness hypothesis is that happiness comes from between. So happiness doesn't only come from within, right? It doesn't only come from meditating and being a good person inside and, you know, psychologically being well, that's only part of the story. And it doesn't come only from external things like wealth and having a good job and good relationships. Happiness comes from between the two. You need both elements in your life. Happiness is not something that you can find, acquire or achieve directly. You have to get the conditions right and then wait. Some of those conditions are within you, such as coherence among the parts and levels of your personality. Other conditions require relationships to things beyond you. Just as plants need sun, water, and good soil to thrive, people need love, work, and the connection to something larger. It is worth striving to get the right relationships between yourself and others, between yourself and your work, and between yourself and something larger than yourself. If you get these relationships right, a sense of purpose and meaning will emerge. I think this is incredible because this is a social psychologist and Jonathan Haidt who's really hitting the nail on the head. 
He's telling us, you want to be happy in a scientifically proven way? Boil it down to this. Get the right relationship between yourself and others, right? So make sure that you make yourself into a person that's capable of being in peace and harmony and working well with other people. Between yourself and your work. If you're doing something meaningful every day in terms of the, the career that you've chosen and the creativity that you display in doing that. And finally, between yourself and something larger than yourself, whether that be God, a higher power, nature, whatever you want to call it, as long as you have a relationship with something larger than yourself, all these relationships will allow you as an individual to feel larger than yourself. So anybody who is in a, in a strong marriage, even if there are bumps in the road, they're going to feel this sense of love. And that sense of love is going to make them feel larger than themselves. A person who is doing meaningful work every day, you don't have to make a million dollars. It's not about how much money you make. It's about, do you feel like you're making a difference in people's lives? Do you feel like you're creating something, like you're emulating God and being creative? And finally, in the ability that you have to connect to God, to connect to nature, to connect to the totality of existence. And a lot of that could be through prayer, through meditation, through learning Torah, whatever you choose, right? So these are the ingredients that are necessary for a person to really be happy. ID, what do you think? So my, my, just a question that you're saying the happiness. So two, I, have two, I have two points on that. And I just think of, I told you years ago, like 30, like 30 or 40 years ago, for almost 20, 30 years, my guy was Dr. Wayne Dyer. Yes. He was like one of the best motivational people I, that I ever spoke to, learned from, attended his events, read his 20, 30 books and pages. Yeah. And his thing was, there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. That, that, that was, that's his like mantra. But the other thing is, I'm just, you know, delving into this whole, you know, mysticism, science, this whole this whole new world that you're showing me, how does this how does this relate to let's say self-actualization or Maslow or is this a connection to that? Is that is this part and parcel of that? Is this hundred percent? Yeah. I think I think that's you know Maslow was using different language, but I think he's this is a height, of course, has read Maslow. I think this is what height is talking about is that if you want to feel self-actualized, if you want to feel your best self. The, the necessary building blocks at the bottom of that pyramid are all of these, right? It's all this stuff. Right. Maslow, Maslow is right. Pyramid of self-actualization. The truth of the matter is I got turned on from Maslow because Maslow was Dyer's guy. Hmm. I mean, Dyer, you know, he, every, he, was built, he built his thing around Maslow. So yes. Maslow was amazing, but you're saying that a lot of Maslow is in this paragraph. A hundred percent. I think a, a, a ton of what Jonathan Haidt is saying is about self-actualization and is about that, you know, what is, according to Haidt, what does self-actualization mean now? It means that you don't only focus on yourself because in the Buddhists in the ancient times used to believe like, okay, if you, if you completely perfect your inner life and your inner work and all that, you'll be happy and that's it. Or, or not even happy, you're just like your life will be anything, everything and anything you ever needed to be. And Jonathan Hyde is saying that's not the only ingredient. You need to have a relationship 
with the world around you, with the people around you, and with, with God, and with this higher power, or whatever you want to call this thing that's larger than yourself. And when you do that, you'll feel now I am at my, am I, I'm firing it all on all cylinders. And now I feel self-actualized. I think that's, he would agree with that for sure. Right, but do you think that, in other words, based on the examples that you're giving me, that you're giving the class and you're giving the group, that, that it's a universal format? Or it's like, it's like when I told you about, I'm very big with the Japanese, that whole Japanese, like the thing I showed you, you know, the Ijikai getting in, the wakasabi and, yeah. and all that. So in, in every culture, let's say Japanese or Indian or, or Judaism or there's, there's a happiness quotient or format. Are they compatible or universal? I think, I think they're definitely compatible. I think that once you realize that, what I think what Hyde is saying is that some of the Eastern stuff is great for, the, for, for part of the picture, but he wants to marry, in a way, the Eastern and the Western. So the Eastern uh-huh. stuff that he's taking is a lot of the inner work that they did and the, the meditative stuff. And he, he says there's actually three ways that you could change your happiness level. Psychotherapy, meditation, and Prozac. Those are the three proven ways. I love when he says that. It's so funny. Those are the three ways that are proven to change your baseline happiness level. So you might think, oh, winning the lottery. No, it's not true because that brings you right back down to baseline. But in reality, psychotherapy, meditation, and Prozac are ways of changing your life for the better and happiness wise. But, so, you- but Mikey, so, so with meditation, so if you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you relate to Judaism, so how does like hit boy there do it? Is that part of this program? Great question. So I think in Judaism, the, the Hashem and the Torah demands of us that we don't only be Hitbodedut. Hitbodedut is good for a period of time, but you can't do Hitbodedut for, for the rest of your life because then you're not fixing the world. You're not going out into the world and making the world a better place. And, and, and like, the, like the Hachamim say, Sadikim righteous people in the midst of the city. When Hashem was going to destroy Sedom, he says, I'm gonna, uh, Abraham says, what if there's this many Sadikim betochair? So what matters is the righteous people who are in the midst of everything. And even the Buddhists have this idea that you have to be a bodhisattva, that you have to go out into the world once you become enlightened and bring to them, you know, relief of suffering. Right. So it's important to let's say the precursor to his hundred percent. So the next move is okay. Get into yourself. Let's say, uh, you know, uh, go in your inner self, find out what's going on, and then execute on a plan of happiness or whatever you're doing. hundred percent. I think that's exactly right. Is that, if you find the right balance for you, where you say, okay, I'm going to meditate, even if I need to meditate every, every so often, I'm going to meditate even for days in a row where I don't see anybody, even if it's that extreme. I think that's beautiful. As long as you say to yourself, I'm also going to have a relationship with the world around me and with the people around me. And I love what you said, that leads to that you have to be able to balance the two. You know, I think that's a great point.
So I think that's what he's all about is this balance, is the balance of the individual stuff, the stuff inside and the stuff outside. All right, so now we're on the last, uh, the last source. So try to make it quick. This is Michael Pollan. His book is called How to Change Your Mind. Very interesting book about psychedelics and how psychedelics are being used in, in psychotherapy today. It's the cutting edge of science. Hopefully, I'm going to become a psychiatrist. Hopefully, one day, I'll be able to prescribe some of these psychedelics, which changed the world so radically in the 60s. ID, I'm sure you remember some of that. But even though you I, lived very, it. You know, I lived it, I lived it. You lived it. It's a, it's a, you got to tell me some stories one day. <laughs> but but yeah. it's an unbelievable thing that they're using now the stuff that the hippies were using to help people with depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, you name it. They're using psychedelics to treat it. So let's see what he says. This is from How to Change Your Mind. The mystical experience may just be what it feels like when you deactivate the brain's default mode network, right? So there's, there's this network in your brain uh, that is constantly on. This can be achieved, right? So this is autopilot. This can be achieved any number of ways. So how do you get out of the autopilot? How do you get out of the default mode network? How do you get into that mystical experience? Through psychedelics and meditation, as Robin Carhart Harris and Judson Brewer have demonstrated, but perhaps also by means of certain breathing exercises like holotropic breath work, sensory deprivation, like to have those tanks today, fasting, prayer, overwhelming experiences of awe, extreme sports, near-death experiences, and so on. What would scans of brains in the midst of those activities reveal? We can only speculate but quite possibly we would see the same quieting of the default mode network Brewer and Card Harris have found. This quieting might be accomplished by restricting blood flow to the network or by stimulating the serotonin 2A receptors in the cortex or by otherwise disturbing the oscillatory rhythms that normally organize the brain. But however it happens, taking this particular network offline may give us access to extraordinary states of consciousness, moments of oneness or ecstasy that are no less wondrous for having a physical cause, right? So this is unbelievable that we're, we're starting to understand the science of how it is that we experience these feelings of being larger than ourselves and being connected to the totality of existence. Um, the article offers an intriguing graphic depicting a spectrum of cognitive states ranging from high entropy mental states to low ones. At the high entropy end of the spectrum, he lists psychedelic states, infant consciousness, early psychosis, magical thinking, and divergent or creative thinking. Right. So now he's breaking this down in a very interesting spectrum. He's saying that. You, you could start thinking about the human brain as containing a spectrum of order to chaos, order to entropy. So at the most entropy, the most chaotic and creative states of mind, you have all these. You have psychedelic states, infant consciousness, right? Because infants don't really have so many formed neural networks yet. Early psychosis, magical thinking, divergent creative thinking. That's, that's a lot of entropy. 
But what about the low entropy end of the spectrum? He lists narrow or rigid thinking, addiction, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, anesthesia, and finally coma. Right. So there's we understand now that human consciousness, when we're when we're at the high entropy state, we're out of the default mode network. We're very creative. We're not on autopilot. But when we are on autopilot, when we're stuck in the default mode network, we, we see a lot of these mental disorders with, with too much rigid thinking. So what is depression? Depression is thinking too much the same thought over and over about yourself. Too much negative thinking in a rigid way about your world, right? So this guy, Aaron Beck, has a triad that he talks about, about depressed people. How do they think? They have personalization, catastrophization, and overgeneralization. So personalization is saying, I am bad. There's something wrong with me. Generalization is that my whole situation is bleak. And catastrophization, my future is dim. Right. So all those three combine and nonstop, you know, cycling in the default mode network, that's going to lead to too little entropy, too much rigidity, too much order in the way that you're thinking. And it's the opposite of the mystical experience. Right. So that's super interesting. Carhart Harris suggests that the psychological disorders at the low entropy end of the spectrum are not the result of a lack of order in the brain, but rather stem from an excess of order. When the grooves of self-reflective thinking deepen and harden, the ego becomes overbearing, right? So he gives a great mashal. So listen to this one, I.D. Let's say you have a mountain covered in snow and you ski down the mountain a hundred times. After a few times, you're going to start noticing patterns of where you, you know, you, you went down this path five times, you went down this path seven, path seven times, this one eight times. And then there's going to be areas with a lot of snow because you didn't go down those areas. The human brain is a lot like that. Very often we think certain thoughts, it creates neural networks that are just very set in their ways, very habitual types of thinking in one way or another. So what a psychedelic is going to be able to do for a person or a mystical experience for that matter is that it adds a ton of snow. It shakes the snow globe and it allows you to get rid of those paths because what the problem is when you go down the same path over and over again, now you're starting at the top of the mountain. There's like a 75% chance you're going to get, you're going to go down that same path again. It's very difficult to, 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 to forge a new mental pathway. But now instead of keeping on doing that, you're going you're gonna to shake the snow globe and rearrange all the snow on the, on the mountain. So now you could ski down any way you want. So that's very interesting as well, I think. This is perhaps most clearly evident in depression where the ego turns on itself and uncontrollable introspection gradually shades out reality. Right. So it becomes so bad the way you think about yourself that reality becomes distorted. Carhart Harris cites research indicating that this debilitating state of mind, sometimes called heavy self-consciousness or depressive realism, may be the result of a hyperactive default mode network, right? Too much autopilot, which can trap us in repetitive and destructive loops of rumination that eventually close us off from the world outside, right? So we're not, we're no longer in a real relationship with reality anymore. Now we're stuck in our brains. We're stuck in the same way of thinking over and over again. God forbid. 
Aldous Huxley's reducing valve contracts to zero, right? So Aldous Huxley compared consciousness to a reducing valve that only lets in a measly trickle, he says, all the time. But with depression, it, it doesn't even let in a measly trickle. You just keep thinking about yourself over and over again, and there's no newness. There's no novelty to experience. It's all orderly, old garbage. Carl Harris believes that people suffering from a whole range of disorders characterized by excessively rigid patterns of thought, including addiction, obsessions, and eating disorders, as well as depression, stand to benefit from the ability of psychedelics to disrupt stereotype patterns of thought and behavior by disintegrating the patterns of neural activity upon which they rest. To me, this is incredible. There's a, there's, why, why should it be that the this, this same chemical, psilocybin, from magic mushrooms should be able to treat a whole host of different mental illnesses. And those are very different mental illnesses, addiction, depression, anxiety, OCD, eating disorders. Why should they all be treated with the same chemical? So ID, does this make sense to you? If we have all these different mental disorders that are all so different, and yet there's one chemical that's treating all of them, what does that mean? It could only mean one thing, that there's something in common about all these mental disorders, right? For, so for psilocybin, for magic mushrooms to be successful, it must be that it's like the key that's unlocking the same lock in every single one of these. And that same lock is being stuck in the default mode network. It's being stuck in the rigid thinking. And it's not being able to think about the world in a new way. Three more paragraphs and we're done. So it may be that some brains could stand to have a little more entropy, not less. This is where psychedelics come in. By quieting the default mode network, these compounds can loosen the ego's grip on the machinery of the mind, lubricating cognition where before it had been rusted stuck. Psychedelics alter consciousness by disorganizing brain activity, Carhart Harris writes. They increase the amount of entropy in the brain with the result that the system reverts to a less constrained mode of cognition, right? So psychedelics are able to create a situation in which you can now think about the world in new ways and different ways than you've ever thought about it before. And you could look at your situation anew. Even the exact same facts on the ground will be less painful now because you found a new way of thinking about it. Distinct networks became less distinct under the drug, Gahart Harris and his colleagues wrote, implying that they communicate more deeply with other brain networks. The brain operates with high, with greater flexibility and interconnectedness under hallucinogens. That's unbelievable. Normally, the brain is separated, right? Let me try to find an image here. The brain normally is very separated into these different distinct places and these distinct uh, areas that are lit up. And they don't really communicate with each other too much. Here, look at this ID. All right, what do you see in this picture? This is the placebo group, right? This is the way the brain is connected. Not so many connections. And you see here different areas where the brain is most likely to be functioning. Here and here and here and just over there. But what about on a psychedelic? Oh, my God, it's so lit up. All these areas that previously were that's not connected. Bomb, yeah. Like a bomb. It's unbelievable. No, I said that's when the guy's bomb. He's taking LSD. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> His whole brain is lit up now 
which yeah, is he's, unbelievable. He's, he's smoke. Yeah. Exactly. He's loaded for sure. <laughs> and, 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 why, and why is it so powerful? Because now the person is able to create all these new connections that didn't exist before. And at regions of the brain that used to never communicate are now communicating. Right. And for yeah, one but is, the, that, is, he, is he happy or does he snap from that picture? Usually it could be overwhelming sometimes, but could that's what I'm saying. It, it could it could snap. Yeah, it could. I mean, it could definitely have a bad trip or what they call a difficult trip. But on mm. the other hand, a person almost always emerges from these experiences with a, even if it was a difficult trip, and I would say even especially if it was a difficult trip, with a new understanding of their life and a positive outcome. Almost invariably. Yeah, you know? it's a pretty dangerous. And I, like you talk about throwback when I was a kid, not not com community and not community didn't really matter because everybody was exposed to that. And there was the people that, you know, got, you know that unfortunately went that route that was called tripping. And, and, and it would get to a point where they could, you know, end up in an institution where they would die. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's there was community kids that are contemporaries of mine that I know and outside the community, of course, but that ended up that way. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's why they stress the idea that this, this should only be done in the, in the presence of trained psychotherapists right. in a clinical setting in a safe place. Mm. And these people are trained to know what to do if, God forbid, there's right. an emergency or well, that, to help the person. That's a good point because the world at large in the 60s were, were, were led by people that directed young people to yep. that they they take him on the path and they're really taking on a path of destruction. Right? Yep. That, theory. You didn't fall into that trap. You know? Yeah, yeah. That, and that's the point today is that it's always about set and setting mindset of the patient should be in, in its best state and the setting in which they are given these drugs needs to be in a supportive environment with with trained professionals so who knows maybe also, one day i could work with these patients right but michael could you so two points so yeah you, can you take it to a level of let's say another one of buyers things books that i read decades ago whatever what could you take it to such a, a happiness happiness uh, uh, level that it's not reality like if in, like in Candide, you know, Voltaire's Candide, everything's beautiful, mm. but everything's really not so, can't always be so beautiful. Yep. So that's the thing. Even uh, on psychedelics, things are not always beautiful. You know, they're either beautiful or they're not. And the point is not to be tripping all the time. And not to have the person do this on such a regular basis. So the beauty of this is that with, with SSRIs for, for antidepressants, they have to take it every single day. And if, it's, if, the, if, the, if the level in their blood is not in, a, in the right range, it's very bad and it's not so if effective. If it's under the right supervision monitored properly, then you can give that person that balance of happiness. Exactly. So now with, with psychedelics, the amazing part is they don't have to have a baseline level in their blood. They have one experience for six hours on a couch. And then for the next two, three months, just the memory of that experience is enough to, to fight against their depression. And even if they have to take it a few times a year, it's better than having to take a drug every single day. And also you're doing the inner work that's necessary with, you know, so some people will bring in a picture of their, of their loved one and just look at it for five minutes or some people for 45 minutes. 
And then they'll work out in their brain all the difficulties that they were going through with psychologically. What you're saying is really that a person a person can 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 do this without drugs or with drugs or with supervision. In other words, I'm just trying to nail yeah. that, the prescription. You know? So I think for somebody with very bad depression, one day it's going to be the case that they're going to get prescribed magic mushrooms. They're going to say, go to the office at, at, uh, at 10 a.m. So they're going to get there at 10 a.m. They're going to talk to them. They're going to prepare them. And they're going to start the session at 12 o'clock. They're going to trip from 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock. And, and during that time, they're going to be... They're going to have earphones in listening to nice music. And there's going to be a male and a female psychotherapist giving them supportive psychotherapy whenever they need it. And during the time, they're going to be talking out with them. I had this issue with my parent. I had this issue in my workplace. And I really love this part of my life. And I'm crying. I can't believe how beautiful and how deep my relationship is with my spouse. And that's what it's going to be like for people with mental illnesses. Now, there is also an argument to be made that this, could, this stuff could also be used for the betterment of well people, in the words of Michael Pollan, that one day, who knows, maybe they'll be able to give this out even to people who are just willing to try it, not because they have a mental illness, just because they want to look at their lives anew and they want to deepen their existing connections in the world. But for someone that doesn't have an issue, that, in other words, not an issue, issue. I, I, I'm not looking to elaborate on on each person. Of course. But, but there was another book I read, you know, also that became like sort of a mantra for, for you know, for guiding someone mentally. Is your Stanford professor Carol Dweck mindset? I've heard great things. No, it's a, it's a, it's a book that you must read. I read the book three times. She's wow. Amazing. She does a TED talks. So you got to see her. But. She she really gives you like a a a, um, a template or, or 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 a roadmap to, to you know to take your mind apart and really direct yourself in every channel of your life. She's Amazing. Like, she's like the guru. Every, if you read any book about motivation or strategy or innovation, Carol Dweck is, is mentioned in every. Unbelievable! I know. I, I've seen. I've read like the the blurb of it. I have to read the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I really need to. Well, well, so let me just ask you one yeah, point. Please. On, on the Mister. So, if you could define to me in a snapshot, what's really the mysticism versus kabbalistic? Ah, okay. Great question. So, I would say Kabbalah. The word Kabbalah itself really means tradition, but there, there are now, in today's day and age, we know Kabbalah not to just mean tradition, but to also mean the mystical elements of Judaism that have all joined into kind of one shita, into one way of thinking. And the, the, the real main book that, that is used today is the Zohar. And they have a lot of ideas about sefirot and, you know, what does it mean, the sefirot, and how these are different aspects of God and emanations of God. So that's all stuff I want to get into next week. Yeah, you want to do that next week? Next week, we're getting into Kabbalah for the first time. No, because years ago, I, because Zohar is, is the way he me, and I love me. <laughs> so I, I read a page of Zohar every day. So, really? Yeah, I read it in Hebrew, and my rabbi told me years ago, and then I got a book in English about 
the inner workings of Zohar, what it is, and the different, you know, the different emanate, you know, how it goes up, the different levels. You gotta tell me which book this is. I gotta read it. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get the. I'm gonna get the thing. It's phenomenal. It really. It's phenomenal. Wow. Um, and um, in fact, I'll run upstairs a second, and I'll get it. You're the best. But um, in it, 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 in it, it says, and that's why I read a page a day. It says, even if you read it and you don't understand it, because I don't. I read Hebrew, but I don't understand it, that there's a there's a better thought in doing that. And, and, mm, beautiful. But if you read the, the uh, things, and I'm going to run up and tell you the book now, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Because, you know, I really believe there are levels at which these words can hit us, right. even if we don't fully understand it. Right. There's, there's ways that they can resonate deep within our soul that we don't understand necessarily, you know? I used to be very skeptical of that, but I'm open right. to it. I really am. Yeah, no, no. This, this thing was really, really incredible. What? what, what Continue if you can. Amazing. Yeah, I have one more paragraph and then I'm done. But when the brain operates under the influence of psilocybin, as shown on the right, thousands of new connections form linking far-flung brain regions that during normal waking consciousness don't exchange much information. In effect, the traffic is rerouted from a relatively small number of interstate highways onto myriad smaller roads, linking a great many more destinations. The brain appears to become less specialized and more globally interconnected with considerably more intercourse or crosstalk among its various neighborhoods, right? So basically, long story short, you're able to shake the snow globe. You're able to rearrange a lot of the connections and connect regions of the brain that are not normally connected. So all in all, we've discussed a lot of the science behind the mystical experience, what happens in the parietal lobes, what happens in the default mode network and how this really expands our ability to think about ourselves and our world in a new way. So thank you everybody for coming. We're going to open it up to comments and questions. Uh, I'm going to pause the recording. Thank you everybody for listening. Next week, we will begin our study of Kabbalah. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.